Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. The passage on which the teaching is based this morning is Romans 7. I'll invite you to turn there either in your Bible or in your worship guide. And if you're able, let's stand together out of reverence for God's Word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress, If she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So no, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. One of the things that I'm always amazed about when I examine my own life, and I think if you think about your life a little bit, one of the things that you will be amazed about is how often you treat relationships in your life with a degree of economy. And by the word economy, I mean that it's a relationship in which you approach the relationship for what you get out of it. 
You do certain things with the expectation of a certain return. And so you can see this on in any level of relationship. I consider a child who eats their vegetables and then says, well, I ate my vegetables. I'm ready for dessert. Really? Just because you ate something that is good for you, now you expect that dessert is coming, but clearly that's the reason they engaged it. Or between husbands and wives. I know a husband who comes home and suddenly out of nowhere decides to knock out all the chores around the house, takes the to-do list, finishes it up, and then goes and stands looking expectantly that now certainly will have some special one-on-one time to his wife. So really? Just by knocking out the to-do list, things that you've neglected for months, you think that that will happen as a natural result? Or friends, you very warm-heartedly and generously go over to your neighbor and help them fix their garage door. The whole time thinking, finally, I can get him over to help me fix my air conditioning unit. Underlying so many of the relationships that we engage in is the expectation of something to be done in return. An economic view of relationships is, is, is something that almost saturates us culturally as we relate to one another. And this is... Uh, It's not a very exciting way to engage relationship. We're going to have to explore it a little bit today, and as we do so, I think you're going to find that actually approaching a relationship in terms of economy robs relationship of meaning, of significance, of love. It's not really a relationship at all when it's based on those terms. This is what Paul is going to be wrestling with in Romans 7. At the very heart of Romans 7 is this, the Mosaic Law was intended to serve a purpose. And it did serve that purpose. It has been fulfilled, and you are no longer now to live by law, but by grace. That's, that's it. That's the gist. You're no longer to relate to God as the Old Testament people did, which was through a law that, that managed their relationship with God. Now you relate to God in a different way. We're going to see this in three different aspects, three different points. Number one, you are released from the law. Number two, the law was a double agent. And number three, you are not released enough. Number one, you're released from the law. Number two, the law is a double agent. And number three, you're not released enough. So you're not released from the law. All right? What is Paul saying? Why is this significant? Let's start to bore down into Romans chapter 7. Notice that at the beginning, Paul is deliberately addressing his, his brothers and his sisters who know the law. It seems that when Paul has been running along in Romans, and we've gone through chapters 1 through 6, and he gets to chapter 7, and he says, you know, I've not done adequately, um, I've not dealt adequately with the law. There's still some questions remaining in terms of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ and how the law relates to the believer and what the purpose of the law was. We have to take a pause. We have to take a turn. Now, even as I say this, I know some of you are even beginning, maybe even subconsciously, to tune out because you don't feel that the Old Testament law has very much to say to you. Don't be so foolish. There's going to be huge applicability to what it means for you to walk faithfully with Jesus now, so don't write it off right at the beginning. 
And this, uh, Paul, at the beginning, is going to say, okay, let's talk about the law. And the main point in verses 1 through 6 that he wants to make is that all believers in Jesus have been freed from the law. And this is the analogy that Paul begins with, which may seem a little bit confusing. He says, listen, as long as a married couple, both parties are living in the married couple, they're bound to one another. If one tries to go and get married to another person while the other person is living, that is adultery. But if a person dies within the marriage, that person is no longer bound to the other person and therefore is free to proceed. Paul's drawing an analogy from this and saying, you have died. Your death has happened in the death of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, you are no longer bound to the law. That relationship has um, is done. You've been set free. So, okay, I'm freed from the law, great. You probably haven't spent a lot of time weighing all of the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, so you think, what's the big deal? I want you to notice what Paul is saying right there in the beginning as to what changes, because for Paul, everything is changing. Remember, the theme, the, the, uh, theme of the sermon series is that everything changes as a result of resurrection. How does resurrection change our relationship with the law and how we relate to God? In every way conceivable. So look with me. First, there's a change in your relationship. At, look at verse 4. You're freed from the law so that you can belong to another. All right. Followers of Jesus go from being bound to the law as they relate to God, a system or a code, to actually being bound by a person, Jesus himself. Second, also in verse 4, this has been done so that you may bear fruit for God. All right, There's new purpose. The law did not yield fruit. In fact, verse 5 says that the law was only good for bearing fruit for death. But being unified to Jesus bears new fruit. And third, according to verse 6, your service changes. No longer do you serve according to the written code, but now God's people serve in the new way of the Spirit. All right? Now, Paul is, is rushing through this and it, in just one short paragraph, but he said several very dramatic things. Right? Everything has changed for the person who is now unified to Christ. No longer is it bound up by the law, but number one, you're not related to a code, but a person. Number two, your productivity changes. You go from bearing fruit for death to bearing fruit for life. And number three, your whole mode of serving God changes from relating to a code to relating to the Spirit, to God directly. Now, there are going to be significant applications from these changes that are going on in the midst of Romans 7. But what you have to be aware of just in this first point is that you have been released. All right? Romans 7 is, is tough stuff, right? It's theology 400. So I need you to shake your head if you understand you've been released from the law. You've died in Christ. You're released from the law. Okay, now you may want to rush to the question, what am I released to? We're not going to get there yet. All right? Paul, Paul's going to get there, but Paul says, no, first we have to answer the question, well, what was the purpose of the law then? If we had this great, wonderful law from God, and all of a sudden everybody's released in the death of resurrection of Jesus, what was the point? What was going on? And this leads us into our second point, which was the law was a double agent. 
The problem that is related to the law, Paul wants to make clear, is not the law itself. In verse 12, he calls the law holy and righteous and good. The problem is what? Sin. That's what has corrupted the law. Look at verse 9. Paul writes, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And verse 11, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Well, that's odd. If the law condemned, if the law brought death, then was the law sin? Was the law bad? Paul says, absolutely not. What's going on for Paul in the background of his mind is the stories of Adam and Israel, which um, inform our story. So Paul thinks of Adam, and Adam's created good, and the creation is good, but God gives a command, and that command is also good. It's holy and it's righteous. Don't eat of a certain tree. But that very command is what gave opportunity, it's what gave leverage to sin, to take advantage of the situation and corrupt things. Without the law, without the command, sin didn't have anything to work with. Or if you think about Israel, called out of darkness, saved from Egypt, being led by Moses, or given God's law to set them apart. And suddenly, they all start obeying the law. And the story goes great, right? Wrong. The more law they're given, the worse things get. The more opportunity there is for rebellion and for disobedience. Law, good, holy, and righteous in and of itself, becomes a stepping stone of sin. And sin actually increases by virtue of the law. Sin is, you know, if we were to put this in contemporary terms, sin is like a a computer virus. Right? You've got a great computer, you're working at home, all your software and hardware is running well, and then all of a sudden you get a funny mail message from someone you know, but the subject's line is kind of odd, and you click on it, and suddenly you've introduced a virus into your system, and everything was good and working fine, but the virus uses all of those components. The virus can't exist or function without those components, but it uses those components to then corrupt your whole machine. And then everything is worse than when you were where you were before. That's what's happening with, with the world, with God's creation. He gives law, which is good and holy and righteous, and sin comes in and infects it. It spreads like a virus and corrupts everything that it touches. But, now what's really interesting in Romans 7 is you think, well, God wasn't very smart. Why did He make something that could so easily be used by sin? Why introduce a system into the world that actually is going to allow sin to grow and increase? Good question. Paul says, no, you don't get it. That was God's point. See, and you go back to the Old Testament, you, the Old Testament speaks in terms of the law as something that gives life. If you're obedient, you receive life. If you're disobedient, you receive death. But it promises the gift of life. And what Paul is saying, no, it really could never give that. It was intended all along to be this matrix in which sin inserted itself, and sin would grow and swell and build itself up to Goliath-like proportions. And God did this so that when sin is like Goliath, He could send the new David. 
and Jesus would knock it down. It's almost as if you know you have to you have to cause the infection and a boil to rise to the surface before you lance it. And that's the way the law is functioning. It brings sin to the fore. It defines it. Something that was abstract and not defined before. Paul says, well, once the command was given, I knew what sin was, and I was much more uh, culpable. I was more responsible because I was willfully rebelling against God, not rebelling in ignorance. And so the guilt is increased. And this is part of God's intention in the law. So we realize that just like one of those movies in which you watch and you're thinking somebody's working for the CIA for the first half of the movie, and suddenly halfway through you realize that they're really working for the KGB. As you read through the Scriptures, the law seems to be working as a promise for life, and then you get to the New Testament, and Paul has to evaluate everything in light of the resurrection. He says, oh, sin, the law was actually working to build up and define and trap sin so that God could send the one who would defeat sin. And so that we would understand more better what sin actually is. So, this is the double agent function, which Paul speaks of in verse 13. Read it with me. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. This is the purpose of the law. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure so that it might be defeated. So, so far, number one, you are released from the law. Number two, Paul says it's not enough to understand that. The second thing you have to understand is the law was serving as a double agent the whole time. It wasn't really oriented about what we thought it was. It was really um, shaping sin. It was defining sin. It was building up sin so that sin might be sinful beyond measure so that it might be taken care of in Jesus Christ. Now, this leads Paul to what is the most difficult part of Romans 7. And this is our third point, that we are not released enough. Now, just as a caveat, um, as we proceed from about verse 14 onwards, in Romans 7 is a terribly difficult passage to interpret. There are uh, two perhaps three very distinct interpretive lines about this, even within our own tradition. And you need to know that. I'm going to tell you how I read it, but you have to be aware that there are different approaches. And the basic question is, as we kind of work through it, you can be asking yourself, is what? when is Paul talking about? When? You know, Paul speaks of himself and his own struggle. Is he talking about the struggle that he had before Jesus came, as a as when he sought to be a faithful Jew? Or is it, when he first became a Christian and was understanding things anew, is that the struggle? Or is it actually describing his struggle right now? I'm going to tell you how I read it, but I think it's important that you know that some aspects of the New Testament are very difficult to get right at clearly necessarily what Paul was talking about. And so you may want to wrestle with it. You may want to consult uh, different commentaries on this part of Romans 7 in the coming weeks. This is what I think is going on with a grain of salt. So, by the time we're uh, entering into, um, even in verses 11 and 12, you see that Paul is, um, you know, it's funny, he started by trying to relieve the tension of the law 
And what he's been doing is actually, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, creating this very big tension. He's been building it up. And what is this tension? In verse 11, he tells us that the law gave opportunity to sin that resulted in our death. And in verse 12, he says that the law is holy and righteous and good. And you might say, well, which is it, Paul? Is the law the opportunity for sin and death, or is it holy and righteous and good? And beginning in verse 14, as he continues to wrestle with this, he writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So on the one hand, Paul recognizes that the law is good. It's something to be respected. But on the other hand, he's recognizing that as he thinks about God's law, he can't possibly remain faithful. He tries to. He tries to do what he thinks he should do, but he can't do it. Something holds him back, and he says that he is uh, flesh. He's sold under sin. Now, what in the world are you supposed to do with that? Paul is now saying that he's under, sold into sin. He's, he's using the language of slavery. He, um, he's, a, he's in bondage, right? But just in verse 6, he said, He's released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul, I'm getting frustrated. You say, on the one hand, that I am released and free to live by the Spirit and good to go. Freed from the law. But on the other hand, you seem to be indicating, even in your own experience, that I am not really free. That I'm actually a prisoner. That I may acknowledge what is good and just and beautiful about the law, but I can't do it. I can't actually pull it off. There's something in me that prevents me from doing it. And you want to, you know, I really, all week I want to, I think about meeting Paul, and this is the first thing we're going to talk about. Really? You couldn't be more clear. You couldn't work that out a little bit more or get an editor in the first century to make Romans 7 a little bit more accessible. And I think what Paul is wrestling with is the fact that, um, there's a number of facts, essentially that it's both. Okay? This is where we need, we need to settle down and try to, to try to think, um, in the first century a little bit. What, what's going on for, for Paul in the, the young fledgling church that's trying to understand the person of Jesus in the first century? All along, they, the, the faithful Jewish group, those people of God of the Old Testament have been trying to obey the law and thought that it would bring life. And ultimately, they realize that it won't give life, that life comes through the Messiah, the one who lives and dies for them. And so they're wrestling with who Jesus is. and But they're wrestling also, well, what does that mean for us in the way that we live? How do we relate to one another? How do we live according to the law? And Paul writes in the midst of this, says, no, everything is changing. And in chapter 6, Zach did a great job last week of, of showing us how much it has indeed changed. Paul says dramatic things in Romans 6. You've, you've died. You have been, past tense, raised with Jesus. You are freed from sin. Do you feel that? Do you feel raised from the dead and freed from sin? No, not entirely unless you've got a screw loose. And Paul didn't either. And Paul realizes that as he's unpacking everything that's going on, he realizes, oh, there's been 
in old age, and this is what he characterizes Adam and Moses and law and flesh. By flesh, he doesn't mean your physical body. He's talking about what it means to live according to this old age. And then Jesus has come in and brought a new age, but the ages overlap. They're not distinct. Like you don't have a line and you have one age and beginning of a new age. The ages overlap. And so Paul says all of this is true in the coming of Jesus, and yet it's not. In other words, you haven't been released as much as we really need to be released. Paul says, you're dead to sin. You're raised from the dead. You live by the Spirit. But almost as if the, the actual crisis of dealing with this in his own heart and in the heart of his people is crushing him, in verse 14 he starts to pull up and say, well, we haven't really been raised from the dead. We're not resurrected yet. We haven't really been freed from sin. It's a struggle for us all. And so we sit in this place between the ages in which these grand promises have been declared to be true because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and yet we still sit and we feel the old man. We feel the flesh. And we have, part of us acknowledges what is right to do, and yet part of us can't do it. We can't, we can't make it happen. Because we're caught in this in-between the times. And it's not that you're schizophrenic so much as there's almost actually two, you know, two people inside of you. There's that part of you that is characterized by the old age. There's that part of you that is characterized by the new age. And they fight against one another. And you know that fight, and Paul knew that fight. And I think that's what's bearing down on him from verse 14 onwards in Romans 7. And he, and he goes on, he says, this is awful. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? Have you felt that? Bound up in your acknowledgement of what is right to do, but your inability to actually do the right thing. And in frustration and perhaps hopelessness, you say, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? But what is interesting about this, this aspect of the last part of Romans chapter 7 is that Paul clearly wants to lay emphasis on the law. Right? All of Romans 7 is about the law. And as he comes down, he's recognizing that as he thinks about the law, he appreciates its holiness and righteousness and goodness, but he also understands his inability to carry out the law. And so there's, he's commenting on the struggle which exists but I also think that he's pointing out both for himself and for the church in Rome and for Trinity Harbor in the 21st century that to the degree that we continue to relate to God by law is the degree to which we will continue to struggle with sin. This is what Paul is setting up Romans 8, which is life in the Spirit. And this, that's where we get to have fun next week. But this week we have to talk about the law. And why it is always still our tendency so frequently to live according to the law, right? Just like the child who eats their vegetables or the husband who does his chores or the friend who goes over and works on his neighbor's um, uh, garage door so the neighbor will come over, right? We see that we are still deeply saturated with an approach to relationship that is economically defined. That if I do X, I should receive Y. If I fail to do X, then I should receive Z. 
And this is how so often we relate to one another. And sadly, it is what continues to affect our relationship to God. You cannot forget verse 6 in Romans 7, which is, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So why? Why did we die to that which held us captive? So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And Paul would, is, 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 um, is talking about the struggle that when we relate to God solely through the written code, when we have an economic relationship with God that is inferior to the new way of the Spirit, why and how is that the case? All right, let's do a little reflecting on our own lives. First, when we saw the benefits of uh, being freed from the law in the first part of Romans 7, we said there's a change in relationship. That no longer do I have this buffer between myself and God, which is the law, and now I relate to God directly through the Spirit. You have to realize that when we continue to live with God by law, it is an incredibly lonely way to relate to God. Right? Because everything that you're doing with God is related to performance. Right? How am I doing? And how often do you think about your relationship with God and immediately go to a place, well, what am I doing? Why is that the way you define your relationship with God? Why do you think, how am I doing with God? How am I in relationship with Him? And start to think about His love for you. It's interesting that we so often go to how we're doing, how we're performing. How would God evaluate, do I have enough items in the credits column or do I have too many items in the debits column? And that, that performance leads us in one of two directions. First of all, it can lead us in the direction of arrogance. People who are characterized by performance, if they go down, they essentially hit a fork in the road. If you relate to God by law. If you relate to God by law, then your relationship with God is bound up by the way you perform. And if it's bound up by the way you perform and you think you're performing well, then you're going to choose option to the right. The fork to the right, which is arrogance. I'm doing really well. Actually, when I look at the people to the right and left of me, I think I'm doing exceptionally well, and so God is going to honor my righteousness. He's going to bless me. We're, we're doing well. It was perhaps um, the arrogance of living by the law was, was captured quite well by uh, one of the new top 20 songs by Aloe Black, which is entitled, I Am the Man, which Jennifer and the kids are learning to sing of me at home. Girl, you can tell everybody. Yeah, you can tell everybody. Go ahead and tell everybody. I'm the man. I'm the man. I'm the man. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm the man. I'm the man. I'm the man. I believe every lie that I ever told. Paid for every heart that I ever stole. I played my cards and I didn't fold. Well, it ain't that hard when you got soul. I am the man, I am the man, I'm the man. Right? Which is funny, but it's really the heart of the person who lives by performance and thinks of themselves as doing well. Right? And we laugh at that, but do you get frustrated in your life when things don't go the way you think they should go? And is part of your reaction then to go to God and say, God, why aren't you delivering? You're singing the song, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Right? Proud 
in your own accomplishments and what you judge to be success and therefore expecting to receive something from God. Realize that you are loving God, not for who God is, but for what you get from God. That's the first fork to the right. The other fork to the left is despair. And that's when you realize, oh, I'm not really living up to God's standard. I'm not doing well at all. I'm not going to pretend. And then you realize, oh, what will save me? If you can't live up to God's standard, my goodness, you don't even live up to your own standard, that's a place of hopelessness. If God isn't going to rescue you, and as you go down that road of despair, you will have to anesthetize that pain one way or another. You will have to alleviate the lack of hopelessness in your heart one way or another. And either fork you choose, you're going to end up desperately lonely. Second, living... uh, of being freed from the law, we said allows you to bear fruit for God, fruit that is actually honoring to God out of the love that God has shown you. But when you live according to the law, you bear fruit that is really only for death. And that was uh, incredibly well illustrated uh, recently in the Lego movie, which is a very fun movie if you've not gone and seen it. And I'm not going to ruin it for you this morning. I'm just going to choose one small part of it to relate to you. So Emmett is the main character, and he exists in the Lego world. And uh, in the Lego world, as run by Mr. Business. And Mr. Business has established how everything will go in the world. And to do that, he's, he's sent out instruction booklets, Lego instruction booklets. So everyone builds and operates according to the Lego instruction booklet according to the law. And as Emmett is going through life, right? Boys and girls, you have probably seen, some of you have seen the movie, Everything is Awesome, right? When you're part of a team. And as Emmett's working with his team and he's following the instructions and doing everything that he's told and living by law, he realizes in the midst of that that no one actually knows him. That he simply serves a function in an economy but he doesn't have any real relationships nor his love for who he actually is. And so he begins to move forward and one thing happens and another thing happens and he eventually is introduced to the master builders, which includes Batman and uh, Gandalf and uh, the wizard in Harry Potter and uh, all of these great superheroes, the master builders, who over time, Dumbledore, thank you, begin to um, to love and appreciate Emmett for who he is. And suddenly he's freed from living in the boundaries of the law, and he's freed from building simply what the instructions say to building things that are actually a pouring out of himself that are good for everyone. Right? Formerly he was bearing fruit according to the law, which was only good for death because it was... Uh, the law, which was fine and good, the, there's nothing wrong with the instruction booklet, but Mr. Business had taken over all the law and used the law to control the world and ultimately would crush the world under his thumb. Emmett's freed from that because he no longer lives according to law and he enters into a relationship in which he's loved for who he is and is enabled to bear fruit that actually benefits the world. So it is similar for us. As long as you are related to God with this buffer of law, you continually try to bear fruit that's caught up in performance and caught up in measurement and caught up not in real relationship. And then you enter into the gospel. You enter into the death and resurrection of Jesus and you realize that God loved you to the extent that even though you could not possibly fulfill the law, 
Jesus lays down his life for you and you are redeemed. And he says, you're already one. You're already freed. You're already resurrected. Now go and bear fruit. And no longer do you have to say, well, is my fruit worthy? Is it going to be acceptable? Is this a good sacrifice? Am I going to find approval in God's eyes? The answer is always yes. And so that ridiculous burden of law is lifted so that you can actually relate to God in love. And so you bear new fruit. And all of this, third, says um, the benefit of being freed from the law is that we no longer live according to the, the written code, but we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? What is this new way of the Spirit that is being introduced? Well, that is Romans 8, and we'll jump in next week. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that we are freed from the law, and thank you that we are born on the other side of the resurrection and do not relate to you through a system or a code, but we relate to you because we have been unified to Jesus Christ and we have been given the Spirit of God. And now we are called to live in a new age in which we are no longer alienated in our relationship, but have opportunity to grow in our relationship. Father, we give you thanks for this and pray that we would we would struggle with Paul, but also grow out of that struggle and be those who who no longer relate to you according to law, but increasingly relate to you out of the love that you have shown us, being unified to Jesus and through the power of the Spirit. Teach us what that means. Help us to grow up in it. Help us to be new as you intend us to be new. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.